Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes As summer comes to a close, we're dreaming about hitting the beach. But a generation ago, many beaches were segregated. As a result, some of the country's most famous vacation getaways have a surprising role in African-American history. You know, African-American families who lived on Hilton Head Island would, could go an entire lifetime without ever seeing a white face. Um, and today, this is you know, sort of home to um, numerous resorts, you know, golf courses, and um, very you know, small and dwindling African-American population. I'm Sarah McConnell, and this is With Good Reason. Later in the show, we'll look at why some people don't evacuate when a dangerous storm is coming, and others take their sweet time about it. Even mundane things like there a particular type of potato chip that folks liked and was only uh, carried in the uh, store that was uh, uh, two cities over. And if they're going to go on the road, they wanted to stock up, and they'd travel across the region to grab those potato chips. Also today, the struggle to make art again after losing everything in Hurricane Katrina. I think the realization of what I had lost and what everyone had lost really hit me. So I said, okay, it's gonna be like the field of dreams. I'll create a space for people who don't have the space, but they can still write or do their art. But first, Andrew Carl. Andrew Carl is a professor of history at the University of Virginia, who's written two books about race, property, and the United States coastline. Andrew, a hundred years ago, African Americans owned a lot more beachfront property in the South than they do today. How did they come to acquire it? Were these former people who'd been enslaved, who are now living and owning the properties that had once been plantations? In some instances, yes, uh, up and down the South Carolina Sea Islands and Georgia Sea Islands. These were lands that were abandoned by planters um, following the Union invasion during Civil War. Some of those properties were sold off to freedmen and women. In other areas of the coastal South, in the decades that followed, African Americans began to slowly acquire um, hundreds and hundreds of acres. They were not really conducive to large-scale agricultural production. They were very remote. And so an African American who was seeking to sort of gain a measure of, of autonomy and freedom in this sort of Jim Crow South um, would seek out this type of um, area f- to you know, become an independent landowner. So after World War II, we see an explosion of beach and oceanfront resorts by both white property owners and black property owners. Yeah, I mean, we're still, you know, keep in mind, this is still a time where segregation was the law of the land. African-Americans who themselves are excluded from uh, beaches, parks, playgrounds, swimming pools, are seeking to develop their own spaces where families can retreat to during the summer. Was it mostly those poor farming families that turned their own properties into resorts enjoyed by black families? Or was it black entrepreneurs that tended to come buy that property up and create the resort? It was both. And sometimes farming families became entrepreneurs. In some instances, it was um, black capitalists who sought to acquire lands that were um, unused or available and uh, began to build up beach resorts. In some instances, you had um, white capitalists who were um, seeking to build up resorts that catered to an African-American public. Are we mostly talking about a 20-year stretch between 
the end of World War II and the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement? Yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, following the 1964 Civil Rights Act that, you know, desegregated public accommodations throughout the South, many of these black beach resorts struggled um, in the face of declining revenue um, for many African-American families who could now sort of vacation wherever um, their dollars would allow. Um, they, um, you know, really, you know, these places really struggled to continue to sort of um, remain viable. And, and in some instances, many question whether they should remain viable, whether or not it was appropriate to continue to have sort of black beaches at a time where the goal was to sort of desegregate shorelines, period. So after the heyday of these African-American resorts in the South, how did people start to lose their lands to white buyers? Oh, there was a variety of different ways in which you saw um, these, you know, very valuable properties slip out of the hands of African-American owners. So many speculators would sort of prey on African-Americans who felt delinquent on their taxes and buy up um, acres at tax sales. So what happened to these former resort areas that were exclusively for black families and individuals? Were they destroyed? Were they left to languish? Yeah, I mean, that's what, where I sort of begin and end the book is with the stories of places that were once owned by African-Americans that today are gated communities, um, places that are now golf courses, where you would see no evidence if you were just sort of looking at it from afar that these were once um, places that had um, large numbers of African-Americans who would flock there each season and would really, um, you know, had a really important place in black life um, under segregation. But today, perhaps most tragically, are the instances where you see the descendants of the former landowners who are now working these lands, either as, you know, groundskeepers or as waiters and restaurants working in service of um, other people's profits. Any big high-end beach resorts whose names we'd recognize there were once something else? Yeah, I mean, I think the most sort of telling example is that of Hilton Head Island in South Carolina. Um, this was an area that was almost entirely um, populated by African Americans, um, where you know African American families who lived on Hilton Head Island would, could go an entire lifetime without ever seeing a white face. And today, this is you know sort of home to um, small and dwindling African American population. It's so interesting. Your newest book looks at the same sort of beach exclusivity, let alone racism, in the North. And you say in the South, whereas people might have had the color line and places where people could and could not go, in the North, it wasn't as explicit. Yeah. So in the North, you had privatized shorelines where you had um, private beach communities that were themselves oftentimes discriminatory and who could become members, but then had beaches that were then for members only. Or you had um, all-white communities that restricted access to their public beaches to residents only. Had they done this to limit access to African Americans or just to say, we pay for these beaches, we keep the upkeep, we want to make sure that it's pretty much townsfolks? Well, that's what they said. Um, they certainly you know, said that the race had nothing to do with it. But it's undeniable that these exclusionary measures really proliferated during the very same years where African-American populations um, in cities in the north also grew. Name some of the towns where you had this sort of thing going on. Yeah, I mean, Greenwich, Connecticut's perhaps the prime example um, where they explicitly um, restricted access to their public beaches to residents only. And it was frustrating to a lot of African-Americans who wanted to use these beaches. You write about the experience of Anne Petrie. She is the Harlem Renaissance novelist who said her most humiliating Jim Crow experience took place in Connecticut where she'd grown up. 
Yeah, yeah. She grew up in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, and she, as a young child, accompanied a, a group of white children on a picnic, a Sunday school picnic. You know, this Sunday school group that had gone there on numerous occasions without any incident, um, when um, this young African-American girl, Ann Petrie, um, accompanied them, suddenly that um, local ordinance was enforced. And um, the security guard who you know worked the beach told them if they didn't leave, they would all be arrested. Um, and so they were forced to go back and have their um, picnic on the church lawn. And as she said, you know, we ate in clammy silence. This new book, Free the Beaches, stars a crusade by a white man who lived in Hartford, Connecticut, to open these New England beaches to African Americans. Tell me about him. Yeah, Ned Cole was um, a young um, white Irish Catholic college graduate who in 1964 quit his job in the insurance industry and founded a domestic um, peace corps, um, as he called it. It was called Revitalization Corps. His cause initially, and really throughout his life, was to sort of get uh, middle-class white families, you know, those people who are living in privilege, more involved in solving the problems in cities that many of them had left behind when they had uh, moved to suburbs. He really sort of saw that these exclusionary measures that suburbs and wealthy white communities used stood in the way of a more integrated, equal, and caring society. He would go to the inner city. He would go to Harlem. And he would get groups of children, bus them to these private Connecticut and other beaches and sort of dare officials to keep them out. Yeah, the idea was, it's like, let's help find ways to get children who are living in these ghettoized, segregated neighborhoods out of the city during the summer. But when they first came down to the shoreline of Connecticut, seeking to find a place to, um, you know, where children could go and enjoy a day at the beach, they came to realize that there was nowhere they could go. So what did he do? He got angry. This really sort of rubbed him the wrong way. He kind of realized on an instinctual level that there was something very wrong about this. You know, for many Americans, we kind of see that the air, the water, you know, and the beaches belong to us. And um, yet these communities were sort of trying to keep the public away, or rather a certain segment of the public, away from something that um, was really kind of our, our common heritage. He would take groups of these children to the beaches, and they, they would have what amounted really to a lunchroom sit-in, a lunch counter sit-in. Yeah, or you could call them a wait-in, if you will. Um, and, and, you know, he would do very inventive strategies, such as, you know, leading what could be called amphibious invasions of shorelines, because he would bring a sort of, you know, flotilla ashore, um, you know, with children, and they would sort of spend the afternoon playing um, on the um, wet sand portion of, of these private country clubs and other exclusive beaches, um, calling attention to what he saw as the sort of racist um, motives behind these exclusionary um, ordinances. Was he able to change any of these laws? Was he able to open the beaches at all? Well, he wasn't directly able to, but a young law student um, in the mid-1990s who filed a lawsuit against the town of Greenwich over their resident-only beach ordinance was able to. Um, In 2001, the Connecticut Supreme Court um, ruled that these sort of um, resident-only beach ordinances were unconstitutional. That decision would not have been possible were it not for the activism that Ned Cole and others were waging in the 1970s. But I have been to beaches in Cape Cod or New England that seemed to require a lot of money and a pass and a gated 
access? Uh, many cities and towns have found other ways to make their shorelines exclusive, whether it be through um, having you know beach passes that are more expensive for non-residents versus residents, removing parking spaces so that you know they're sort of really only practically accessible to people who live near the shore. Many many places have found other ways to get around these types of rulings. There are states in the nation that have very explicit policies that say all shorelines are open. Oregon is one of them. Hawaii beaches are by law and ancient Hawaiian tradition open to the public. Yeah, and in California, the entire, you know, California coastline is open to the public to ensure that, you know, billionaires who own property along the California coast can't sort of keep this beachfront to themselves. Andrew Carl teaches history and African-American studies at the University of Virginia. My next guest is an expert on why people do or don't evacuate when they're told to. Joshua Baer lost his father-in-law after Hurricane Katrina. And after the storm, he wanted to better understand what motivates people to evacuate. Joshua Baer is a professor at the Virginia Modeling Simulation and Analysis Center at Old Dominion University. He says storm experts need to do a better job understanding human psychology. Joshua, I understand you have tons of family in the Louisiana area. Were they there during Katrina? Yes, absolutely. And uh, many of those family members chose not to evacuate. Um, Many of my family members traveled uh, westward out towards Baton Rouge, Gonzales, Prairieville, all the way out to Houston. And to this day, when we travel down to Louisiana, we do a loop now. Uh, We hit New Orleans and we travel out through uh, Baton Rouge out towards Houston to hit all our family members because they've been scattered. Did you lose anyone during Katrina? Uh, Not in the immediate uh, loss. Uh, The ultimate demise of my father-in-law, I attribute to the suffering from Katrina, yes. Did he not evacuate? He did not evacuate. This is a good example of a very intelligent, highly educated man. And uh, if anybody should have storm awareness or literacy, the social network to evacuate, yet he chose to stay because based on past experiences, his sense of risk was quite different than the reality of the true risks. What did he actually say to you? Uh, Essentially thought that this evacuation stuff and the magnitude of the impending storm was uh, ginned up by the media folks and uh, the emergency management folks to try effectuate evacuation. Eventually, he did get out of there. He did. Uh, The power was off, and it was miserable, and it was hot, and uh, his medical regimen was interrupted because he didn't have continuity, and uh, the social unrest in the sense of uh, uh, the loosening of of the fabric of the society there was uh, tremendous for him. He was disheveled and confused and he ended up in a Walmart parking lot close to Baton Rouge. He was staggering around the parking lot when the local farmer saw him there and uh, took him in. And he stayed with that farmer. They towed his uh, vehicle onto the farm property, and the wife uh, of the farmer cooked for him for quite a few months, and he lived in that trailer, uh, disheveled and confused. And it took a while for us to find him and uh, connect with him, but he stayed there. And I think part of the reason is his whole world had unraveled, come apart, and he never recovered from that mentally and he never recovered from that physically. How did that experience influence what you and your colleagues are doing, trying to model the effects of hurricanes and how to get people to safety? You know, modeling, a lot of computer uh, leverage going on there, a lot of computational power and equations and all this great math stuff. But if those models aren't girded by or supported by 
real-world understanding of sociology, of the individual, and the psychology of folks, then it's all for naught. You did a major survey after Irene struck your area, Hurricane Irene. What did you learn? Oh, boy, we learned quite a bit. For instance, leading up to the storm, you would think you would take the shortest route. We found a lot of behavior where people traveling into the storm or taking a non-direct route out. So we dug a little deeper and we had conversations with these households that evacuated. And we said, well, where'd you go and why did you do that? A lot of people had a property that they wanted to check on, family members or friends or elderly populations that either were refusing to go because they either couldn't or they just didn't want to go. And they felt an obligation to those households and those populations that traveled to see them. Uh, even mundane things like a particular type of potato chip that folks liked, and it was only uh, carried in the uh, store that was uh, uh, two cities over. And if they're going to go on the road, <laughs> they wanted to stock up, and they'd travel across the region to grab those potato chips. I totally get that. We need our comfort food. Absolutely. Hunker down. In addition, what we found was, say, a family with a husband and wife, they have two vehicles. You would think that those two individuals would hop in one car and get out of Dodge. But in fact, what we found was two vehicles would get on the road when you really only needed one. If you lost that vehicle, you would not be able to make it uh, to work. And you were dependent, living check to check to make that last month's rent. You couldn't afford to have that vehicle lost. A household of two, three vehicles would take all the whole entire set of vehicles out when they really couldn't be uh, evacuated in just one vehicle. Life and limb is at great risk if roads are clogged and congested with folks. So it's really important to push those people off the roads to avoid acute injury get them inside a, a secure building. What do you think the thinking of the government is these days at the local, state, and national level in terms of what responsibility do we have to the vulnerable citizens that we know are going to be hit by the next big one? Well, actually, uh, I'm quite optimistic because I've seen a sea change in uh, attitude and perceptions and engagement and coordination among all levels of government. Now we quite frequently have exercises and we rehearse and we plan and we model. And when we do that, we pay particular attention to vulnerable populations. For example, uh, medically fragile populations uh, are especially vulnerable st storms, elderly populations that have chronic conditions. The propensity to evacuate is quite low. They're the most likely to suffer acute injury. Uh, they're most likely to suffer anxiety and mental distress and uh, uh, physical and mental uh, uh, disintegration if it's a long-term recovery and there's a lot of devastation. Today, public health folks are a key element, a key part of the planning. You got the transportation people there, you got the communication people there, you got the sewage and water people there. You need the health people there too. It's a team. And it wasn't always that way. It was recognized that health is important, uh, but the vulnerable populations and the special uh, messaging you need to effectuate a uh, movement of those populations outside the region and the coordination that would take and the sensitivities to those chronic conditions, for example, medically friendly shelters and people with pets, those type of things. If you go back 15, 20 years, yeah, it was there, but it wasn't nearly as central to the organizing and planning and rehearsing that goes on today. So here we are, full throttle in hurricane season. What's, what's the best advice you have for people based on what you uniquely have learned from your work? So here's the number one golden nugget, and that is simply look out for your neighbor. Everyone, think about someone on their street. Is there an elderly person, a disabled person, a widow, somebody with a mental disability? And you go ahead of time, before the storm happens, go coordinate with them. Go knock on the door and say, hey, I'm so-and-so, I live down the street, here's what my family is doing, we'd like you to join us.
Joshua Baer is a professor at the Virginia Modeling, Simulation, and Analysis Center at Old Dominion University. My next guest is someone who almost didn't evacuate when Katrina was bearing down on New Orleans. Mary Bird is a writer, professor, and former resident of New Orleans. She did evacuate, and after Katrina, she moved to Virginia, where she now teaches language and literature at Virginia State University. She's the founder and editor of a literary magazine, NOLA Diaspora. Mary, how long had you lived in New Orleans when Katrina struck? I had been there a dozen years. I was in this lovely little neighborhood called Gentilly Terrace. All of the streets had arts names like Venus and Music Street. In fact, it's famous because Walker Percy set the moviegoer there. Do you remember watching Katrina getting closer and closer? It was giant. Did you initially think, hey, yeah, I'm getting out of here? No, not initially. Why? Because I had evacuated for the previous storm, I forget the name, but that had been one of the largest evacuations in history that was just a disaster in terms of traffic jams and delays. Which was sort of a a false alarm. It was a false alarm, yeah. So this time you told yourself, I don't need to leave for Katrina, I'm going to stay here. Right, because Gentilly Terrace did not flood. And I knew I was in a non-flood zone, and most of my neighbors were really into staying, and they did stay. They stayed through the storm. Did you stay? No. About an hour before the mandatory evacuation, I got a call from friends in Shreveport who said, somebody's out of town. You can have their apartment. And they said, bring everybody. So I set off, and I had to go across the causeway and realized I didn't have gas, and I didn't have any cash. So Katrina struck August 29th. Do you remember what you were thinking about? Like, good, now it's over. Let me get back there. Right. We were watching the news in this little bitty restaurant, and that was when the first mention of water rising in the streets came on. This is the part where now the pumps have failed. Yeah. And I still don't think I recognize the magnitude of it. But my friend said, you know, maybe you should stay up here a couple more days. I didn't go back until October. What did you lose that hurt the most? Yeah. So at school, it did flood. Southern University flooded, and my office was on the first floor, so I lost everything, and I never actually even saw that office with my stuff in it again, never. And then at home, because the roof had come off, my office happened to be on the second floor there, so I lost all of my books and all of my work at home as well. I thought I had a backup in my laptop, but that ended up crashing a couple of months later, too. At some point, you actually got one of those FEMA trailers. Did you feel relieved? I I loved the trailer. I had been in a government-sponsored room at a French Quarter hotel, which was also very nice and the most luxurious mattress I've ever been on. But the, the trailer felt like the first time I had my own space. And I thought, this is a tidy little dollhouse. Everything was in miniature. It was delightful. I I tried, as a matter of fact, to keep the pets there. And that didn't work out because they kept breaking out of the trailer. So they had to get boarded back up in Shreveport with friends. How long did you stay in the trailer? I think I was there about two months. I ironically had a formaldehyde trailer. Those stories are true. And I did not have respiratory problems, but I had 
like terrible headaches because formaldehyde is a neurotoxin. You left New Orleans within a year of Katrina striking, and you weren't alone. It seemed like 100,000 or more left. I, I came up to August with no place to live, and Virginia State University had offered me a job, so I just put those boxers and the chihuahua in the car and headed north. <laughs> do you miss New Orleans? I do miss New Orleans. I, I would have to say I'm very happy here. But once you love New Orleans, you love New Orleans. How did you create from this your online literary magazine, NOLA Diaspora? Well, after I moved up here, I think the realization of what I had lost and what everyone had lost really hit me. And I always try to think of a positive way to respond. So I said, okay, it's going to be like the field of dreams. I'll create a space for people who don't have the space, but they can still write or do their art. And then I'll help them put it out there. So we got www.noladiaspora.org. And if you go there, you'll find really talented academics, creative writers, artists, musicians. We do features on certain artists. We did Arturo Pfister, who's been called the Poet Laureate of New Orleans and who's now in New York. Um, we did Abe Louise Young, who's in Austin, Texas, but who spearheaded community efforts to rescue victims of Katrina and actually the most recent Hurricane Harvey in Houston. Do you only accept pieces from people who are part of the diaspora from New Orleans or about New Orleans? No, we've been, we've been very careful to try and encourage people because the title does put some people off. They think it's, it's local. Um, but we have writers from Oklahoma and Minnesota um, we're very interested in the fact that the Mississippi connects the country. The Mississippi is kind of the United States. New Orleans is an emblem of the United States then, and the condition of that city is kind of symbolic of the condition of the rest of the country. If you look at what happened with the whole diaspora and immigration issues there, you can see precursors to Sandy and Harvey, but then you can also look at the changing demographics of cities after those events. So I think that New Orleans is not isolated or singular in that way. Your next issue will be focused on immigration. Well, we actually decided to respond to the immigration crisis going on right now, again, in a positive way by looking at how creative couples and creative families contribute to their community. So we're going to have husband and wife teams and some of their children who are um, artists also. So our Katrina issue always comes out on the anniversary of Katrina or the levee break, it's the 29th of August. You lost all your work in Katrina at that time, but I understand you have a novel in the works. <laughs> it's, it's fiction, but it does deal with the post-Katrina times. It's called House Hunting in New Orleans, and Foray Press in St. Louis is looking at it right now. Well, this is wonderful. Mary Bird, thank you for sharing your thoughts with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you. Good to talk to you.
Mary Bird is the founder and managing editor of NOLA Diaspora and a professor at Virginia State University. You can find the magazine at noladiaspora.org. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. A lot of Americans hold the view that climate change is an issue of the future. But for many residents, especially in coastal Virginia, climate change is a problem of the here and now. In places like Virginia Beach and Hampton Roads, on a day when there's heavy rain, a lot of the roads are flooded. Many residents there believe this is due to sea levels rising. While the water of Virginia's coast is rising, there's one very famous lake further inland that's shrinking. Miranda Bennett has the story of the disappearing lake. Grab your knees and go. Good. Good. Now hold the position. Hold it. Good. Don't break. Don't break. For the few of you who haven't seen the 1987 film Dirty Dancing, there's this iconic scene. It's a summer evening at sunset over a lake that's surrounded by endless evergreen trees. In the middle of the lake, a character named Johnny Castle, played by Patrick Swayze, is lifting Baby, played by Jennifer Grey, over his head. That spot... The spot where the scene was filmed looks drastically different now. It's bone dry. I went to Mountain Lake, and I got a first-hand look at just how much water has been lost. Skip Watts is a geologist from Radford University, and he took me out on the lake in a canoe. So we're about 60 feet low on water now compared to where um, it would be at full pond. 60 feet low is really low. So the Newport Cottage, which is right up there ahead of us, you see what looks like a dock sticking off the front of it out here. It used to be one of the favorite cottages to rent up here. So it's kind of sad seeing it up there high and dry. If you jumped off the dock, you would hit ground, not water. And that's because this lake has holes in the bottom. And it's not the first time it's been this low. In fact, the water level has been going up and down for centuries. The first record of the lake at Full Pond is from 1750. But legend has it that in the 1920s, the lake got so low that employees from the local resort stuffed mattresses down into the holes to try to stop the leaking. But by the 1980s, the water levels hit new heights when Dirty Dancing was released. In 1999, millions of gallons of water were flowing out of the lake every day through four huge holes. A scuba diver swam down to the holes and reported feeling the pull of the currents. Two years ago, the resort used bulldozers to fill those holes with natural local materials, and that got the water back up, but only part way. Now scientists from Radford are here to study this curious natural phenomenon. 
This is Flipper, which is a yellow submarine about two feet long with a propeller on top and a video camera in the front. Skip Watts and his team use it to see a live feed from the bottom of the lake. It's showing off. It is showing off. <laughs> spouting, spouting water, almost like a whale. Once Flipper is deployed, George Stevenson, a Radford geology professor, can see all the nooks and crannies at the bottom of the lake. And I'm going to move the thrusters right now, and you'll see the mud fluff up. And as it tries to settle back down, it is being essentially sucked down into this hole. Eventually, you find these. It's like needles in haystacks, though. This lake is several acres, and I'm, I've got a camera that's showing an area six inches wide. And I, <laughs> so I'll spend some time looking. And those holes are what George and Skip are most interested in. The holes are a vestige of the lake's formation 6,000 years ago, when a landslide blocked a gorge. Skip says, landslides don't really make good dams. The boulders don't fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. The boulders are all different shapes and sizes, and you put a bunch of them together, and they're voids, and you get enough of those voids together, and you can begin to get conduits. Sometimes water drains out through those conduits, and other times silt clogs them up and the lake refills. So there are springs, there are leaks, water goes both ways. Think of it as just breathing. All lakes breathe. But what Skip and George are finding is the science behind the way this lake breathes. Today, Mountain Lake hardly resembles the lake in Dirty Dancing. But just like in the film, a lodge sits at one end of the lake, and that's where I met Shirley Moody. My favorite scene, I guess, is at the end when she jumps off and, and he does catch her in the air. That, I replay that over, and I have the movie, and I replay that over and over and over just for that scene. Shirley drove up from her home in West Virginia because of the film. Anywhere you walk around here, Patrick's Ways, you may have walked, you know. <laughs> it makes it to me kind of like holy ground, you know. <laughs> I think everybody loved Patrick Swayze. Mm. Mm. Yeah. There is something haunting about an empty lake that was once the setting for this classic film. But it's reassuring to know that the lake is still very much alive. For With Good Reason, I'm Miranda Bennett. Now from the shrinking lake, we move to the problem of too much water, rising sea levels that threaten the economy, and even national security. Ray Toll is a retired Navy captain who now works at Old Dominion University as director of Coastal Resilience Research. He's coordinating an innovative response to sea rise. Ray, sea level rise is a problem for coastlines all over the world, but especially worrisome in your area of the East Coast. You all have both sea rise and land sinking going on at the same time? That's very true. The, the Gulf Stream we see is slowing. We know that the Earth is warming, and we're getting more ferocious, more frequent storms along the East Coast. 
and then you add on the slow sinking of the land, you know, it just exacerbates the challenge. How much sea rise are scientists anticipating over the next 20 or 30 years? About a foot is what we're expecting in the next 30. ODU is just two miles away from the largest Navy base in the world. Is an increase of a foot of water a problem for the Navy base? You would think ships would relish it. (laughs) You would think so, but this largest Navy base in the world, you're absolutely correct. It houses 80,000 active duty people, 112,000 families, and 30,000 government employees with all that extra water, it starts to become a navigational hazard, if you will, because you don't want to be running into things, and you don't you want to keep people safe and keep ships safe. Virginia Beach is nearby, and that's a very popular tourist resort. Are the tourist shopkeepers and business people worried about sea rise? They are. They are fortifying beaches, and they are looking for ways to fortify their structures and, and make the coastline more resilient. Is there ever a conversation also, though, about retreat? I remember interviewing an environmental scientist years ago, and he said, ultimately, none of those barriers can really hold back the ocean. Nature will do what nature wants to do. It will always have to be an option, but people will tell you that will be the last option, and maybe over the course of generations, that becomes more and more of what we'll have to do. You know, I took a ferry boat ride this summer to a beautiful tiny island just off Virginia in the Chesapeake Bay called Tangier. Tangier is only four feet above the ocean, and the waters are rising and rapidly reclaiming significant parts of that island. Yes. We look at Tangier Island as an example of what will eventually happen in the Tidewater region, why it's critical that we pool our resources together and do this in an integrated regional fashion. Your university, ODU, was selected by the White House to lead a two-year pilot project for a comprehensive local response to this increased flooding. The hope is that what you all accomplish there will be used as a model for the rest of the nation. That's correct, Sarah. Our president, John Broderick, decided that this was a priority, and he started to holistically look at this challenge. We were one of three from the White House selected, What we did in the very first year was form the teams, uh, over 200 people strong from all echelons of government to look at this problem. We've we've lumped them into five different perspectives of the challenge. Uh, One is legal, one is land use, one is infrastructure, one is citizen engagement, and one is public health. The White House was particularly interested in your area because of all the defense establishments there, right? That is correct. There is a national security challenge for sure. They train here. They man, train, and equip. And on top of that, the headquarters, the admirals, their staffs, those folks that manage the surface fleet, the submarine fleet, and the aircraft fleet for the entire Atlantic, Mediterranean, Indian Oceans are all on the Norfolk Navy base. So not only is it the numbers, but it's the the senior leadership. So the national security is a big piece of it. But the other piece of it, I would say, is the economic impacts. That's what we're going to study really hard in in year two. I think it's a great way, again, to show the country what it can mean through a framework of cooperation and trust.
Ray Toll is Director of Coastal Resilience Research at Old Dominion University. Coming up next, how big game hunters funded Africa's first protected wildlife reserves. A Minnesota dentist sparked outrage when he hunted and killed the famous Cecil the lion, who lived primarily in a national park in Zimbabwe. My next guest talks about the history of the creation of the national parks in Africa. Stephen Masakura is an historian at Indiana University, and he says the national parks in Africa owe their creation in part to big game hunters. Well, the first formal national park was established in the Belgian Congo, set up in 1925. Industrialization, even in the early 20th century, was something quite new for Europeans and Americans. Polluted rivers, dirty air, and to them, Africa represented kind of an untouched wilderness. It was an unspoilt landscape. And so many Europeans who colonized Africa saw in the landscape something that had been lost at home. There was real concern to ensure that what had happened to, you know, the industrializing parts of England and France wouldn't also happen to Africa as well. So was that first park in the Congo a huge one? It was a pretty large one. Shortly after that, some of the most famous national parks in Africa were created, like Kruger National Park in South Africa, which took up large swaths of territory. And very quickly thereafter, um, large parts of East Africa and what is today Uganda and Kenya and Tanzania, including the very famous Serengeti, started falling under the protection of colonial authorities who began to set up some early administrative control over these areas and limiting who could go on the land and what they could do there. Was it easy for them to set them up? Was it just the stroke of a pen by the imperial governor and voila? Yes. The the one exception, though, is that these lands that were viewed as these kind of pristine wildernesses also had people living on them. The Maasai people had lived nomadically on the Serengeti for generations, going back way further than Europeans had. And so in many cases, uh, Europeans needed to either kick these people off the lands that they had envisioned for parks or to set aside special land where these people could live, not unlike uh, reservations in the United States. And is that what they did, or they just let them take their usual quota of wild game because it was so small compared to what the stores were? There were actually pretty intense debates about what to do. In many cases, people who were living on the ground in Africa and reporting back to London or to Brussels would say, you know, these people take a minuscule amount, the natives. Um, And in fact, they're really part of nature too. But many of the elites living in London and so forth preferred to kick them off the land entirely. Oftentimes when Europeans and Americans thought about nature and they thought about natural parks, what they had in their mind was a, a landscape absent human beings. And so part of the reason that we now associate African wilderness and the Serengeti as being absent human beings is because conservationists only went and took pictures of the places where people weren't, because that for them was what they wanted to see and what they wanted to remember. That's fascinating. You know, recently there was the uproar about the killing of Cecil the lion, who had lived on the wildlife preserve in Africa. But I was struck in your book by how closely hunting has always been tied with these African parks. That's absolutely right. One story I tell in my book is of an American named Russell Train. Now, Train goes on to become one of the most important environmental policy people 
in the United States in the 1970s. He's one of the first directors of the Environmental Protection Agency. But Train's sort of conversion to conservation actually happens on a safari to East Africa in the late 1950s when he goes abroad with his wife to shoot and kill an elephant for its tusks. He wants to be part of the 100-pounder club, which is someone who kills a 100-pound elephant. And he actually goes on two safaris in the late 50s, and he comes back from the second one terrified that the decolonization of East Africa means that national leaders were going to take over the game reserves and parks in the hopes to rapidly develop and grow their economies. And so it was actually sort of protecting their hunting interests and these leisure activities that helped sort of spawn a generation of conservation activists. You write about that same time there was a British man who was a scientist, Huxley, who also came back to Africa and was appalled by the scenes of waste on some of this preserved land. Yeah, Julian Huxley is a really interesting character. He was the brother of Aldous Huxley, the famous writer. He was a well-regarded scientist in the 20s, 30s, 40s. He was one of the people most responsible for popularizing Charles Darwin's writing and ideas about evolution in the UK. Huxley was really worried, like Train was, about the future of wildlife in what was then the colonial world, but which everyone at the time knew was soon going to be the post-colonial world. In 1960, he went on this tour where he traveled around all these parts in East Africa and wrote these alarming articles about how the populations of wildlife that he had seen in prior decades seemed to be dwindling. And he would talk about meeting the leaders of these new countries who only talked about increasing production. And he wrote these articles where you would see sort of big headlines and thick black print on the observer that would say, doom, neglect with exclamation points, and then a picture of a black rhino or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) He was one of the co-founders in 1961 of what was then a small organization called the World Wildlife Fund, which was set up to fund game reserves and national parks in Africa. So were their worst fears realized? As African nations gained sovereignty over their own countries, was there an alarming decrease in the amount of preservation going on at some of these established parks? In short, the answer is no, in large parts because of groups like the World Wildlife Fund were able to raise a lot of money and basically pay national governments to continue the parks. What there was a lot of in the years of early independence was a shift in rhetoric. Many nationalist leaders would speak about the need to have the right to decide for themselves what they wanted their country to look like. The minister who was in charge of electricity in Uganda in 1971 was quoted as saying sort of to hell with animals, to hell with national parks. And that was because he was frustrated with all of these um, European colonial officials and conservationists who kept on trying to tell them what to do with their territory and with their land. After colonial rule, did they have a line of argument to persuade them that it was going to be in their best interest to keep these parks in preservation? Yes, they did. And in one word, their argument was tourism. Many countries emerging from colonial rule were quite poor, as you might imagine. But what conservationists said is that another way you can earn money really quickly is by expanding and maintaining these wonderful landscapes you have because tourists will come and they will spend money on lodging, they will spend money on food. And so tourism was the argument that they made to sort of suggest that there was a real economic benefit to these countries. And wasn't there? 
There was, but uh, it's really hard to make a wealthy, well-diversified economy that's based entirely around tourism. Oftentimes, tourist money doesn't trickle down to benefit local communities. It often enriches a handful of tourist companies. And the bigger issue was that even though tourism was a way to earn money, it was not a way to earn a lot of money or nearly as much as many conservationists promised. And so even though countries like Tanzania, uh, which has to this day large amounts of protected land, like the Serengeti National Park, Tanzania remains now as it was when it became independent in the 1960s, one of the poorest countries in the whole world. What do you think of the view that many of these conservationists had that these landscapes belong to all of us, the entire world's population, and not just to the locals, not just to, in this case, Kenya or Tanzania, but to humanity? It's a really interesting question. Actually, this sort of who the animals ultimately belong to is a really fascinating one to me. It actually came to my attention from Russell Train. He and his wife, Aileen, actually produced a little booklet sort of summarizing their journey to send to all of their friends for Christmas. And one of the first things he writes in the book is that, you know, the need for Europeans and Americans to take seriously Africa's wildlife is desperate right now because the animals belong to all humanity, which is something that Tanzanians would be quite baffled by. They would say, what are you talking about? These animals belong to all of humanity. They're within the borders of our country. They're resources to us, just like the trees in Tanzania belong to Tanzania. The water in Tanzania belongs to Tanzania. You can't say these belong to all of humanity. One of the great tensions, I think, that remains in environmental um, thought is, you know, to what extent can we make these kinds of arguments that we need to protect animals or wildlife or an ecosystem for the benefits of all humanity when in our world power belongs to independent nation states. It was a particularly tense question in the 1960s because imagine what it was like for people who had been under colonial rule for their entire lives. Right. And then all of a sudden, they're now independent countries. And they, for the first time, have the right and the ability to determine their own country's future. And at the same time that that's happening, you have many of these Westerners coming in and saying... You can do some of what you want, but you have to expand and protect these national parks because it's really important to all of humanity. And, you know, they would say, well, where was all of humanity when we were complaining about colonial rule for so forth and so on? And now you want us to care about protecting rhinoceroses or lions, which for many of our people, we do not have share the same fascination and love for that you do. Well, Stephen Masakara, thanks for talking with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you for having me, Sarah. It was my pleasure. Stephen Masakara is a professor of international studies at Indiana University's School of Global and International Studies. He's the author of Limits and Growth, The Rise of Global Sustainable Development in the 20th Century. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world, uvahealth.com. Support also comes from Smithfield, a global food company committed to providing food in a responsible way so consumers can share meals and memories with family and friends, smithfieldfoods.com. 
With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Our interns are Emily Hayes and Adriana Gallo. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.